Hello, I'm AT. Welcome to the Bulldog Gear podcast, where we aim to open up conversations and create discussions around the practical habits, ethos, and philosophies of the most successful people in our industry. Here, we will endeavor to identify, unpack, and discuss the actions and habits of fiercely successful individuals in and around the fitness space in an attempt to create clear, actionable philosophies for you guys to experiment with and implement on your own journey of self-improvement. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Bulldog Gear podcast. Today we are joined by Team GB track cyclist Joe Truman. We spoke about strength and conditioning for cyclists, Joe's comeback from injury and why professional athletes aren't doing as much recovery work as you might think. This was an extremely enlightening chat with tons of actionable takeaways from a man at the top of his game and I sincerely hope you guys go away with a lot to think about and a lot to implement. Let's get stuck into it. Hey Joe, how you doing? I'm good, thank you mate, yourself? Not too bad, thank you very much for joining us. No, thank, thank you for having me, it's great, great to be on. For anyone listening that doesn't know, I wonder if you could give us a sort of brief backstory um, to yourself and that, you know, what yeah. you're doing now. Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm on the British cycling team. I'm a, I'm a track sprinter. So yeah, my events on the, on the track, on the velodrome that you've probably seen during the Olympics. Um, so yeah, for the last, since 2015, I've been full time with British cycling, um, moved up when I was 18. Um, and since then I've sort of progressed through the pathway. Um, and now I'm on the podium squad, um, competing at major champs, um, aiming for the Olympics, um, as we'll get into, unfortunately, you didn't quite get there, but, um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's basically in a nutshell what I do. How did you get into track cycling? So like, it's a weird one. I feel like track cycling is one of those ones where it's, it's rare to get into if you don't live in like close, close to a velodrome really. Mm. And that was me. Like I didn't really live close at all. So like all my childhood, I was just playing football. Um, age like 13 or so I started doing a bit of fitness on a road bike um, and I went down to my local my local sort of circuit down in Portsmouth um, and they sort of that's where I started getting coaching and stuff like that and one day the uh, the coach brought out some trap bikes and it's not you're not really many used trap bikes on this track but I thought I'd have a go um, obviously going from like not much experience on the bike going to a to a trap bike with no freewheel no brakes um, like pretty hard to handle like that was pretty like a sort of impacted me, I guess. It was like quite cool. I liked it. Like every pedal rev that you put in, you got back out because they're so stiff and responsive. Um, and from there, I sort of decided if I was going to do cycling, I'd like to do track cycling. Um, packed in football. I probably peaked a bit too early in football. Um, and then by 14, 15, I was, um, yeah, I was trying to do track cycling. Um, obviously, a lot of miles from my dad driving me around because no velodrome near Portsmouth. I think the closest was a couple of hours away, like Olympic um, spec velodrome. Um, and yeah, that was, that was it. Started track cycling, got onto the British team under 16 level. Um, and then I basically progressed through. Um, so I guess I've been sort of like a product of their sort of British cycling pathway, I guess, um, going through the junior ranks and then going full time, as I said, in 2015. Well, so you, you, were, uh, you were super young then. Is there, is there quite a big sort of pool of talent at that young age, like the below 16s? Is it a fairly, uh, fairly kind of substantial amount yeah, of Yeah, like, it, it is pretty big, yeah. It is, especially on the road scene. So everyone starts off doing road, really. Um, like, even my first few races were on the road um, or on circuits at that age. Um, and it is a big, it is a big group, yeah. Like, there's, 
I don't know how many exactly in the UK, but like hugely fast growing sport, like of all commuters, a lot of commuters coming through the sport. Um, but people that age, it's like, it's, it's not absolutely massive. It's obviously not comparable to football or something like that. Um, but there are a lot of, and I guess like, I don't know how you really judge it because like most kids have a bike, you know? So like, yeah. how, how do you judge it with like, is it, if you race, like a lot of people do races, like go ride races, there's sort of like fun races. Um, so yeah, no, it's pretty big, but as when I moved to track, it was definitely became like more condensed, like the riders who, you know, I didn't have particularly good endurance. Like my first two national championships, I came dead last in both of them on the road. Um, but I always knew if I was in that bunch towards the end of a race, I'd have a good kick and I'd have a good, good result. Um, and that was part of the reason moving to, to track sprinting. Um, yeah, on the road, there is, there is quite a big, quite a big group. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite interesting. You said something there that sort of pricked my ears, that idea that I guess when people um, commute, cycling commute, it's quite a, quite mm. a, sort of a logical step to think like, oh, I wonder what I could do competitively. I guess that's what you see a lot, isn't it? But yeah. for, for young, I guess, well, you know, I used to, I used to ride a BMX to school, but it was yeah, never, yeah. I'd never think like at that age, um, yeah. you know do I want to cycle competitively so that, that's that's pretty interesting for me that's quite new information that is a it's a big thing yeah yeah I think so, um go on sorry no no please go for it uh, um so like there was like um I was fairly lucky I guess that there was like a go ride club based in Portsmouth um which I went to because like yeah I see what, like you there's no logical step of just riding your bike to school and then doing a race unless they're sort of like a facility there for you to yeah. use you know um so i guess that was pretty lucky but in terms of like the commuter stuff as well i think there was a bit of a problem i think a few years ago of like you know the cycle to work scheme came pretty big and there's a lot of people that went straight from never really riding their bike to doing like a few months of commuting and then going straight into races and there was like so many crashes for like, yeah. like a few months of in those lower lower like lower leagues like lower brackets of racing like we call it cat three four um like so many crashes of people just going straight from commuting on their own to being shoulder to shoulder, like getting slinging little hooks at each other, you know, like in a bunch. Um, and yeah, that was a, I think that used to be a bit of a problem, but I'm not sure. I mean, I'm so far removed from the road scene now. Um, I'm not sure if that happens anymore. Just, just quickly at risk of going off on a tangent, is there quite a gulf there between the kind of super serious commuter cyclist and, you know, even that, that, that kind of, um, lower, lower level, like, uh, is there a, is it quite a, a difference between the guys even yeah. at level eleven you've been riding a while and then if you're just coming in as a commuter is that a big jump? I'm not sure because the thing I've always thought about cycling is it's it's not hugely skill based. It's like if you've got like a, a tank, if you're a bit of a diesel engine and you can sort of you've got good aerobic capacity, you can be good on a bike and like from commuting you might do half an hour and you're absolutely smashing it through like traffic lights and you're essentially doing an interval session. So you sort of get to a race and you can actually be in decent shape, but what you're missing is like that track craft and that ability to sort of ride like within a centimeter of someone else without getting stiff and falling off. Um, so I don't think there is a huge gap, like especially when you look at bikes that some like commuters are riding these days, they're like better than bikes like I've got on the road, um, like it's thousands of pounds on bikes. Um, so I don't think that is a huge gulf, but it's more where there is a difference. It's in like technical ability rather than, rather than physical ability. Yeah, I can see that. So what the, the, the type of track cycling you do, I wonder if you could just uh, kind of talk us through it a little bit. Mm. Yeah. So obviously in cycling, you've got like the velodrome, um, 
and the track cycling as an event as a whole, but that is then split into two. So you've got the endurance categories, which is the team pursuit, which is you see four riders go around the track and they take turns and they sort of cycle back around in sort of as a line. Um, and then you've got the omnium, um, which is basically like the, the cycling equivalent of the decathlon or something like that is like multi-event. Um, and that's the endurance side. And on the sprint side, you've got um, what I do, which is we've got team sprint, which is Chris Hoy's event, basically, or what he used to do. Um, three laps of a 250 circuit, so 750 meters and around 40 seconds of work. Um, and then on top of that, you've got the individual events um, in the sprint, um, which is almost the, the way people always allude to it is like the cat and mouse event where there's two riders and there's, you're sort of looking around, you're sort of, it's three laps again, but there's really only one lap of sprinting because it's a bit sort of tactical work before that. Um, and then the other event, which I guess sort of my, my, as an individual event is my speciality is the Kieran, um, which is a six lap event with six riders. Um, and you follow the motorbike, which brings you up to speed. And then with three laps to go, the motorbike peels off. I think it drops you off at around 65 kilometers an hour. And then you basically accelerate into the finish then. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the three events that I compete in. Um, there's also the kilometer time trial, um, which isn't an Olympic event, um, but it is a, you do race at the world championships and that's just one kilometer full gas. What sort of time uh, domain is that one kilometer in? Uh, about, so you're, you're winning the world champs in about 59 seconds. Wow. Um, so anywhere around the minute mark is good. That's um, mind blowing. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that's the, I'd say the equivalent of that is like the 400 on running yeah. 400. Like it's, it's like, you get some endurance athletes that are at sort of at the pointy end of, of sprint of, of endurance, like the sort of punchier endurance riders and you get like the longer sprinters like myself. So, um, I'm sort of, a, I'm more of a sort of a, a long distance sprinter, I, I guess. Was there a particular reason you, you chose those disciplines or is it something you just kind of found yourself in, uh, kind of yeah. based on where your strengths were lying? I just, I just, yeah, is just based on sort of how I did in races. I always did, as I said, like, if I was there at the end of a bunch race and I'd have, and I could sprint with the rest of them, I'd sort of like win hopefully <laughs> or like, but if it was a super long race and I'd, I'd very much be at the back. Um, and I sort of just, that's pretty telling for me, I guess. And I thought, right, let's go full gas for sprinting event. Um, and then I was lucky at British cycling. I think in my, when I first got on British cycling, they were, they had a couple of both endurance coaches, but the coach I was given was pretty, sort of insistent that I did sprint and I guess that was good in the end. Um, so yeah, that's it sort of just fell into doing sprint really. I don't, that wasn't a point where I chose, I wanted to be a sprinter and I trained for it. I sort of just trained as a cyclist and I was better at sprinting, I guess. So you're, you're doing this really, really and truly on the highest level. What does your training look like for that throughout? The yes. Week? So our training is like, it changes hugely from sort of block to block throughout the year. So like the main bulk of our training is um, sort of we, we basically want to get some strength in the gym um, and then over the course of a taper or a training block, we want to sort of apply that to the track. So like early on, say we've got the world championships um, at the end of the year, the first four months of the year, be solidly in the gym, like really in strength blocks. Um, sort of almost, it would almost feel like gym, we're sort of gym athletes. We're like, we're looking at it in an event in itself. Um, and then we get closer and closer to the event we uh, sort of peel away from the gym, come down to only two gyms a week and more track. Um, but on a week to week, you'd have Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the gym in the morning, um, sort of three main lifts um, with some accessory work. 
um, and then usually three track sessions. Um, I quite like doing double day, day off, double day, day off. So I'd usually go Monday gym track, Wednesday gym track, Friday gym track, um, and then like a road ride recovery spin at the weekend. Um, then that can change as well between blocks. You might you might have sort of each day doing a little little often if you want to sort of work on quality or at the minute what I'm doing is sort of getting a big base of training in. So I'm doing double days. Um, and yeah, so usually three gym, three track, um, either a road or an interval session on top of that. Um, and that's usually a good base, a uh, good foundation. What age were you? Cause obviously you started really young. Uh, what kind of age in your training did you start incorporating the strength work into the cycling or alongside the cycling? Um, only when I was 17, I think. Um, so I mean, now I think they're doing it a little bit earlier with the sports progressed quite a, long, a lot in the last five years in terms of gear ratios getting bigger. So it's becoming more of a strength sport. Um, but for me, I only started at 17, which I mean, still seems fairly young. But I think for me, it felt quite late. I mean, a lot of other riders are in the gym, you know, at 15 or 14 even. And I felt a bit like left out. But I think it's always good to, to work on yourself as a cyclist first and you get very good pedaling efficiency, which I think sort of sets me apart, I guess. Um, so as soon as I did the gym work, I sort of built on top of that, which I already had. Um, so yeah, not super, super early, but I guess still I was in, you know, EIS gyms working with some really good S&C coach when I was 17, I guess. Um, I was pretty fortunate with that. Was there a reason you, like you said, there was a, a few guys that were in there a bit younger. Was there a reason that you were a little bit older than those guys or was that just a um, coach's decision? Yeah, coach's decision really. I had a few discussions with like some national. I remember when I was younger, I got a bit excited when like various like national coaches would say, "I'll oh, get Joe in the gym," and I was like, "I was like music to my ears." But then I sort of like my current coach would say, "Ah, oh, it's probably not ideal. Let's work on this first. Um, so I didn't really get. I came to Manchester sort of full time, and I think I could only squat like 110 kilos or something. And there's a lot of other riders that were already at 150, like perfect form. But um, yeah, I've always. I mean, I know I'm pretty, I'm pretty lanky. Like I'm never going to be the best in the gym. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, it's still something I've got to work on, you know, um, day to day. It's a good job. You're an elite level cyclist then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you like, but which is, I think still my, my height is still quite unusual in sprinting really. Like I think I'm the tallest by quite a way. Like I'm six two and I think the other tallest guy is maybe five eight. Um, oh, blimey. So it's quite a big jump. Um, and I feel like I'm, like, you see me in the gym and I'm nowhere near what these other guys are. But at the end of the day, it's gym. We're not competing to get bigger numbers in the gym. We're competing to get some strength in the gym to then apply to the bike. Um, so that's always sort of saved my ego a bit when everyone else <laughs> is outlifting me in the gym, you know. Obviously, at 17, you, you were still sort of growing and, you know, you were naturally going to get stronger anyway. But did you notice a big difference once you started applying the strength work to your cycling? I, th I remember my first year of gym work, I just got slower. Like, oh, really? I, I just, yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't quick at all. I don't, I don't know if that's just for me because, as I say, I'm pretty like, I don't think I'm built for heavy gym work, really. Um, like, naturally. Um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like for at least six months I got slower and it took me a long time to really apply it to the bike. I think my body was probably used to just spinning on a small gear on the, on the track and making use of that. But then, you know, grinding out squats and leg press and deadlifts, like I think it took me a while to be able to transfer that. And I think for a while I just felt sluggish on the bike. Um, 
but I remember there was one session where I sort of maybe I had like less neural fatigue I don't know what so I, was, I felt pretty decent um and then all of a sudden I banged out like a huge pb um and that was that must have just the only thing I did different was starting that gym work like six or so months earlier um so yeah there's 100% there's a carryover like without a doubt but sometimes it does take a while to see for sure yeah it's like you almost had to kind of uh switch it on when you were when you were cycling like you, you yeah. mentioned neural fatigue there like maybe yeah you just needed to kind of get accustomed to applying that strength yeah, um, yeah. on the bike yeah and i think when you're new to something is always you're always in a hole aren't you for a while like mm. even if it's a new if, even if it's a new exercise you haven't you could be seasoned in the gym but like a new exercise which you haven't really done much before and for a while you're going to be feeling that but i guess i was just feeling that throughout <laughs> every limb (laughs) you're tall so you've got further to lift stuff so yeah it makes sense the amount of times i said that in the gym (laughs) that's my fullback excuse everyone else everyone else is squatting like over 220 and i'm there with 180 yeah i (laughs) I think everyone over about five foot 11 says that about every sort of crossfitter yeah Yeah, i'd be able to do that if i was five foot eight yeah (laughs) i think i think like i feel like sometimes it's done me good as well i feel like I can out deadlift the rest, I think, because was, yeah. <laughs> like long arm, long arms, I can get into pretty decent position, and like, I mean, that carries over well to the clean. I've, I think I've got one of the best cleans, but it's just my squat that and my bench really that lets me down big time, um, in terms of gym numbers. But at the end of the day, like, it's a as I said, it's a means to go quick on a bike. It's not, it's not just a means to increase your number in the gym. Yeah, yeah. This is very interesting to me because I, I find a lot of the conversations I have with people. Um, perhaps aren't as in as uh pedigreed or kind of grandfathered sports like cycling so mm. it's almost as if the strength and conditioning stuff is a fairly new addition and yeah and like it's lot, in its infancy yeah and in a lot of sports they're almost finding their feet with it like a lot of the mm. in the especially in the action sports the the people that are doing it now they're almost the guinea pigs to figure out what yeah yeah so it's, it's really interesting to you know, here you say you, you go, as soon as you started lifting, there was, you know, there was a well sort of worn route for you. Um, mm. Was, was there like in terms of programming and stuff like right from the get go, was there a, a sort of really decent structure for you to follow? Yeah, there was in terms of just basic strength, I guess, like in terms of like your two main lifts, your, your lower body lifts always for us. Um, with some sort of like accessory to work. But I think that's quite interesting mentioning like almost guinea pigs because like my first two years in the academy, we were, we were essentially guinea pigs for all these PhD studies. Um, like a lot of PhD students were like sponsored by British Cycling. I mean, it was always us that were getting like experiment on. So I remember like sometimes we came in and we, there was one test we did where they wanted to measure like, like, like muscle temperature, like intramuscle temperature after two different warm ups. So like they split us into two groups. Um, two of us did like a, a long, slow and low and slow warm up essentially, and two of us did like a much more condensed warm up. Um, and then they like basically got a thermometer, like a thermometer, an injectable thermometer, and like injected our like VL and like measured it six centimeters four and two um, centimeters deep, sort of measure the temperature. And that was just sort of one of like five things we did. Um, like we did a lot of like uh, isometric work in the gym, which had never been done before. Um, a lot of like involuntary muscle contraction, sort of like complexy stuff. Um, 
and that's I think a lot of that work that I mean we were just guinea pigs we didn't really have any we weren't doing anything sciencey but a lot of that has paved the way for like the way that we all train now um like a lot of isometric work can replace gym work when you get to when you get towards a race like you want to get obviously cycling is all concentric you want to get yeah you want to get rid of any sort of eccentric fatigue as you get towards a race so you're on a, a big erg and we're doing isometric contractions in our exact bike position for example and that was one of the things that sort of was developed over the last few years um so i think in terms of like there is a basic structure which i think every sprint cycles in the world would follow um but then i think quite a few nations now are beginning to do sort of new and exciting things like similar with us um which are sort of still being developed for example like i've heard some rumors of people doing sort of almost reverse pedaling like eccentric pedaling on the bike so they've got to resist the pedals going backwards um and other things sort of around that which are still really in development um and i think that coincides with the sport as as i mentioned earlier is like the gears are getting huge in the sport so i mean gears that chris hoy used when he was at his prime would i mean it's still sound a bit arbitrary if you're not a cyclist but it's like basically 105 inches which is the distance it takes sort of for a full revolution of the crank and now we're up to like 140 inches which is like like close to 40 percent increase in terms of gear so we're pedaling much slower but obviously with much more time to recruit muscles um so i think gym work is really still it's still building even though it is like like a deep-rooted part of the sport it's still like it is changing a lot um and becoming more and more important yeah that's super cool because i think the the downside sometimes in sports that uh, organized sports that have a ton of development behind them and you know really mm. sort of well organized governing bodies etc is there's the danger that they can get too stuck in their ways and not yeah not on board like new developments and you know you Definitely. guys are, yeah if you if you're increasing your you know you need 40% more output because of a you know mm. a change in crank sizes but that's not being sort mm. of recognizing the strength work you're doing there's a big danger there that yeah. you're gonna fall behind aren't you and i think we're lucky with british cycling like they're so forward thinking with stuff like that um like obviously work really close to the eis who sort of i guess the pinnacle of sports science really mm. um and they're sort of that like we've got many many people at bc that obviously like contracted through eis um which is obviously huge because i mean if 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 all training was just up to your your cycling coach I think gym wouldn't be such a huge part, but because you've got the opinions of other people, like super clever people that have sort of worked in other sports, they've seen the effect that's had. And it's almost like a, a merge of a lot of different, um, like a big wealth of knowledge basically. Um, but yeah, it is really good that uh, for such sort of a, I guess sprinting as a sport is very old. Like it's been the Olympics for ages. Um, it's still, it is still sort of changing year on year, I think, or Olympic cycle, Olympic cycle, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that, that idea that you, if you improve the tool, the tool being your body, then mm. that, you know, that's the, that's the main factor. And I think there is danger in a lot of sports that the, the emphasis is on improving, improving the skill, which obviously at your level is, is super vital, yeah. but like, you know, having a, having a better tool is also going to have so much, you're going to be able to apply that skill better. Right. Yeah. And you look at, like British cycling sort of famous, well, I don't know if it was then, but they famous sort of the term like marginal gains, you know, mm. like so many things that go into sort of your overall performance. And I guess one of them is like, yeah, you're tall, like the biggest one of sort of building 
building your reserve really like i, th- I see gym work and uh, training as a whole or mostly gym work is sort of you're increasing your headroom for your peak and your, of your performance basically like the bigger your bank of gym work the bigger your, your potential is basically on the bike um i mean it's not as simple obviously but that's how i look at it um so i think yeah uh, it, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i think that's that's a fantastic way of putting it mate i think that that's ideal isn't it like there's there's never any disadvantage in being in being stronger right no. the low yeah. hang, like if you're if you're particularly like you're a sprint cyclist surely the lowest hanging fruit of improvement is going to be having stronger yeah. legs right yeah you can't you can't be too strong you never get to a point where you're too strong because you can either put your gear up or just spend a few months out of the gym and focusing on bike riding and yeah. then your strength any strength's going to drop and your your um technique on the bike and your coordination to pedal perfectly is going to go up um so what does a what does a normal gym session look like for you? Um, so for me, I mean, it's changed recently with my I had back surgery um, last Actually, year. Yeah, but so before changed. we can, sorry, before we go then, just to give it some context, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your uh, about your back surgery. Yeah, so I've I was struggling with my back for say, my, I guess like on and off for like a year or over a year, I guess. Um, it's hard to say because you have periods where it's absolutely fine and it's not, but I basically like genetically, I've got quite a narrow, narrow um, spinal canal. So like genetically, there's not that much space for my, like my spinal cord to go through. So as soon as I had a tiny little disc bulge, it caused like huge symptoms basically. And I've never had it, never, it was never a herniation. It was never particularly bad on a scan, but because of sort of like this narrow spinal cord canal, um, that tiny bit of pressure from the disc bulge, which I mean, my surgeon reckons like 90% of athletes have, um, like that tiny bulge basically caused a big, big reaction in me. Um, so for like a year I was on and off, um, with like pain, like sciatica, basically like no back pain or sciatica. Um, and it got to the point in like March, 2020 where, oh, sorry, January, 2020, where it was really, it was getting pretty bad, but I mean, the Olympics weren't too far away. So it was almost like, sort of training through pain which obviously wasn't ideal but when you're at the top end and you, you want to go to the olympics it's something you sort of deal with i wouldn't recommend anyone else you know um and then obviously in march or april the olympics got postponed for to put a year back and then it was then i had the prospect of like 18 months of dealing with this pain which really wasn't feasible um so through lockdown we sort of tried what we could to make it a bit better but we eventually got towards the end of the year and it wasn't it was getting worse like you know, it got to the point where like putting your socks on was tough. Um, I'd get on a bike and I'd be okay because I'd be sort of brace core. And like, I mean, I spent last 10 years around the bike. So I guess my body was pretty adapted to it. Um, but to do the work in the gym and even just everyday life was getting real painful. So yeah, we decided to go for a, a discectomy surgery. Um, I think I essentially had a bit of the bit of the disc shaved off um, in my lower back and some of the facet joint were shaved as well because I think that had overgrown to compensate um, for the last year of just sort of having a problem. Um, so yeah, I had a discectomy uh, towards the end of 2020, um, and then after that six months of rehab, I've sort of I'm back to I'm back to where I was before, which is great. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's basically some context to that. So um, sort of previous to that, was your training any different previous to the injury? How was actually so, training with the injury? You mentioned when you were on the bike, you train, were kind of all right. But. Yeah, training with the injury was, I definitely had to train around it, but um, 
it was almost something I could sort of, it hurt, but I mean, stupidly, I sort of just dealt with it. Um, so I'd do, I'd be, yeah, back squat clean would be the sort of my bread and butter of my sessions um, with leg press counting as maybe two of the three sessions a week. Um, and on top of that, I'd be doing um, bench pulls, um, dumbbell bench press for upper body work. Um, and then like load of core. So when my back was bad, I did so much core. It was crazy. Um, which I think it helps, but it might, it might have kept me going for a while before like ultimately going for surgery. Um, but I know everyone says cause the way to fix a back problem, but I, I think sometimes it can't be fixed. Like I know a lot of people say a lot of people are so adamant of not having surgery um, yeah. and just fixing it. And I guess some people can because they can just, you know, not train and just do core work and that might work. But for me, I had to train and I guess the core work was did a little bit to sort of slow down the progression of it. But at the end of the day, the training load was making it worse and worse. Um, so yeah, so it was always clean and clean, almost like a primer, a bit of a warm up to get snappy, um, building up like one RMs on there, like quite often, but not always. Um, and then squatting was the main one. I was back squatting before surgery, um, but that's all stopped. I'm going to front squat now. Um, so yeah, that was always the two main lifts though, but leg press is huge as well. Um, now, especially, um, but even before surgery, that was a big, that was a big part of my sessions. Would you say your, your, your gym sessions are, are majorly different from what other strength athletes do? Or do you think they're, they're, you know, comparable to what, you know, a lot of people might expect to walk into the gym and do? Yeah. I'd say they're pretty comparable. Um, an absence of much upper body unfortunately for like when I go to the beach but um like everything's everything's around the lower body so just wear um, short shorts yeah, <laughs> yeah and, a, and a long sleeve top um but yeah I'd say they're pretty pretty similar it, um with exception of sort of like this some of the stuff I mentioned like isometric work on the bike um I'd say it's fairly similar um it goes through like a, a huge range obviously hypertrophy early early in the block and building up to max strength towards the end um but i'd say i'd say that i don't think there's anything that would be surprising to see us doing in terms of just normal gym gym work is there anything that you you say that there's nothing that'd be surprising but is there anything that anyone who's like a, a keen cyclist or even people who just kind of commute and they're looking to um maybe increase the longevity of their you know their ability to commute on the bike or just make it a little bit easier or you know whatever it may be to improve their cycling is there anything that someone who's already in the gym yeah i think adding in i think as a cyclist like we're inherently sort of hunched over the bars which like the least optimal posture you could ever wish for you know like you're hunched over the bars rounded lower back like closed off hip, hip flexors so i think for me like for the average cyclist i'd i'd be focusing on getting your hip flexors open engaging your glutes to help with that um and sort of so i'll be doing a lot of you know bridges and squats and anything that can really sort of open you up rather than sort of close you down like you would be when you're on the bike um a lot of sort of I'd, 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 something i think a lot of cyclists would benefit from is doing sort of low rows and anything sort of that targets the mid to upper back because we spend so much time like this that we really don't learn to engage your upper back at all so in terms of longevity it might not be it might not look like you're doing you know, you're doing something good for the bike because you're sort of working in an opposite way to how you would ride a bike. It would definitely increase your longevity. Um, I think that's one thing that I think like naive, I guess, if you're a bit naive about 
gym work as a cyclist you'd like you'd always your gym work would replicate what you do on a bike so you'd be doing you know like partial squats because you only pedal at partial range of knee flexion you'd you'd only be doing sort of things like which you would directly correlate to the bike but yeah i think in terms of in terms of longevity it's better to train your body as just an athlete um or just a person you don't need to train exactly as a cyclist um with exception of those few sort of stretching i think stretching a hip flexors in your upper back and things like that um i think you're always better looking at yourself as a a rounded athlete rather than just boxing yourself to cycling specific work yeah i think that's the temptation is i think in a lot of sports as well is to look at the look at the even just look at the muscles or the movements that are specifically the main drivers right and think like yeah. oh that's what i'm going to get stronger in and mm. like you said there uh, like your upper back you may not think of you know this is you know this is not touching my pedal so what yeah good what good is it but you, it's passively and in some ways actively working throughout an entire race right yeah and, and uh, sorry, although the pedal although the power goes through the pedals like from from your hands holding the bars the power goes through like your whole body because you've got to hold yourself up so and you've got a steer as well so like it's almost cycling is almost like a chain you know you've got mm. like everything everything's connected completely but in, even in terms of the power going through it goes through your hands like obviously you pedal hard you, you pull harder with your hands um so there's always going to be a limiting factor if your upper back's not great as well especially as a track sprinter um, yeah yeah but i think like when we say about almost training to the requirement of the sport i think in japan i noticed quite a lot is like i think there's less less scientific um thought behind behind the training and it's more sort of logical so you'd logically see yourself pedaling to equivalent of a quarter squat so you'd only have a quarter squat um and things like that and i think that's one really good thing that british site can do is they look at you as a as an athlete rather than just just what we do which is ped around in circles yeah yeah it's weird isn't it just to sort of look like uh, just go by observation and just look and say yeah. well yeah like you say i'm only working in this range of motion i mean it, it makes logical sense i think but um yeah i don't think it's optimal yeah it's like a logical fallacy isn't it like yeah it seems yeah, right. yeah, it yeah. seems like the most obvious answer but it, it yeah yeah it's pan out like that in real life like i guess i'm just lucky that i've got like i, I mean I, I probably thought that when i was younger but i'm just lucky that i've got these guys at bc that sort of help me see that i guess yeah yeah i think you see it a lot in running as well and i think it's something that's changing now as more a more people become interested in strength sports and b more strength athletes transition into like i think i went to yeah. instagram the other day like is anyone in strength is anyone like in coaching not doing a triathlon this year because it's just yeah, blown yeah. up hasn't it like it's brilliant yeah, yeah. It's so big. but you're see, suddenly seeing all these guys and uh, guys and girls with this extra bit of knowledge going like you should be training your upper body um mm, yeah, because definitely. when you know especially over longer distances when that melts down you're suddenly left trying to carry something that's no longer aiding you it's just weighing yeah. down right and yeah, I, yeah, um, yeah i imagine yeah. it's actually in in your events even even more important right because you've got to output the power quickly yeah. which is it's coming through your whole body isn't it you're not just kind of yeah. spinning your legs yeah and also aerodynamically mm. um so obviously the bigger you, are, you get the bigger hole you're going to punch in the air um and like 90 percent of our power that we put on a bike is just getting the air, just getting through the wind um and we know that one percent better aerodynamically is pretty much going to give you the equivalent of a one percent power increase 
um, which is huge when you think about it. You could like if your biceps are too big, you know, it's gonna it's gonna rob you of thirty watts. You know, it's like <laughs> so that's my excuse for having small arms again. <laughs> but but um, yeah, every, everything everything links. You know, like everything. Yeah, everything connects on a bike as well. Yeah, it's almost like that. There's probably people who are keen cyclists. Uh, the work they're doing in the gym, chances are they'd actually be better off just doing what they can't, you know, just, I don't know, just doing CrossFit or something that's going to build them into yeah. a more generalized athlete. Definitely, definitely. I think, and in terms of longevity, if you're not looking for peak performance, so, say you got a race in two years and you everything towards it, you probably might get better bang for your buck from doing something very specific, you know, like just squats or, you know, just, just something where you can just work on one thing. But in terms of longevity, which for most, like, 99% of people that's what they're looking for um they're definitely something like crossfit or something where you get more awareness of your body angles and just because on a bike you don't have great you know you don't have much feel for your body you just sat on a saddle and you're pedaling and your arms are essentially inactive where you know you're doing something like crossfit and you learn you know, pelvic tilt how to hinge how to do all these things and that's all that's only going to be positive for your longevity and your career yeah that's a that's a really really good point there for anyone coming up quite young or you know anyone listening who's even got children that have an interest in in kind of getting into cycling at a young age um is that is that a similar sort of thing you you would recommend obviously they're going they're going to have coaches and stuff but if we're talking about kids that are at a level where they're kind of just starting to take things seriously and they want to sort of augment that what do you yeah. think would be the best route in terms of strength and conditioning for them? I think just like, a, even as a road cyclist, I think it's having two sort of basic S&C sessions a week is going to always see you right. Um, obviously, as you progress, as you get a bit older, that might change into more strength work if you're being a sprinter or might change some more sort of tendon strength and sort of crash resilient stuff if you're an endurance rider. Um, but I think, yeah, two S&C a week, is, it's, it's not going to change your career in terms of, your progression hugely but it can give you a little bit of an insight i guess into what i guess as well being in the gym if, if you're naturally strong you're going to be more inclined to be a sprinter side as well so i think i think it's always going to be a positive you know there's there's no reason not to um even at the world tour riders that you know they do like eight hours a day on a bike they're, they're still being in the gym um and that all they need is aerobic capacity on the outside that's what you think but they're still strong guys. Like they're still leg pressing a lot. Um, and although they're not bulky because they need to keep their weight down, they're still like neurally pretty strong. Um, so I think no matter who you are, sort of what, what route you want to go down in, in the sport, I think um, S&C is definitely a must. Yeah. What are the, what are the sort of, Matt, you, you've mentioned back squats and cleans, which the first time we spoke mm. that actually, I had to think about that for a minute, but it, it makes such sense, but it's just something I've not really ever thought about yeah. um, for cyclists my favorite lift by a long way um and i, I was pretty lucky because i think as soon as i went in in the gym with s and c coach they were, they were um clean was like the first thing on the list because if you can do a clean you, you know you got you got sort of modified deadlift you got like a first pull of a clean similar to a deadlift you got the hinge um you got the jump and you got the catch and the squat so if you can do a clean there's not much in the gym you can't do yeah um, i think that's why it was such a big thing for me early on um, so I've always cleaned like it's my favorite lift by a long way. Um, um, and, and it is some of the other guys they try and replicate, you know, of like trap bar jumps, um, because they didn't learn it at a like, young age, but I'm pretty lucky, I guess I'm glad that I did learn it. 
Um, and yeah, it's just all rate of force development, isn't it? Exactly what we need mm. on the bike. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to, it's like heavy, but you want to, it's the same as a, a gear. Gear on a bike is very heavy, you know, but you've got to get it quick and get to your max strength quickly. Yeah, I know after, when, when I came to your place and um, when I was walking back to the train station, that was, I, I was thinking about that nonstop yeah. and it, I, it was like an epiphany. I was like, yeah, you, you're actually developing absolutely everything you need yeah. to output yeah, power yeah. there. Like you say, you've got yeah. that, that pull, you, you're working your traps, you're working your mid back, your upper back, and then you've, you've got a great hinge. So you're getting that kind of proprioception mm. that how to output power through your hips whilst keeping yeah. your, your, your trunk stable. And then into that squat, like, yeah, it's such a, such like I a think, power move. So I think, I think there could be so many, I reckon there's a big, there's a big talent pool of weightlifters that could come across to the track and do pretty good. Like, I mean, if there's any out there, feel free to contact me. Like, I'm really interested to see that. Um, I think there'd be a quite, I think you, I think if you can, if you can clean and snatch well, I think, I don't think there's a huge amount that you'll be lacking in the gym to go well on the bike. Um, obviously it'll take a long time to like learn the technical aspects of it. Um, but I think there's, quite a few i think there's a lot of crossovers for sure yeah and again that's i think something you're seeing in in triathlon and more endurance stuff now where the the guys who have uh you know have got a background of strength training have got that extra durability that enables them to quite quickly take to new things right Mm. and there's possibly a whole pool of people who all they've ever done is this sport specific stuff yeah and you know, it takes a lifetime to build a lot of strength, right? And you can, endurance, you can pretty, you can build an aerobic base fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, a lot of these guys that are coming into these sports have got such a massive, like, head start. And if, you, if you've built, like, a fairly robust sort of body that's durable, you kind of know you can get through most things, right? You, you start falling yeah, yeah. apart. If you start, things start to break down, you've got a huge buffer versus somebody who's never... You know, they've never spent time making their, making their body stronger beyond their sport. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. In terms of even like tendon strength and things like that, you know, it's like mm. that takes a long time to build. It's not like, it's not like you can, you know, you can't get that in like a few months of training. Like, yeah. like all around strength takes a long time. It's like a, yeah, it's a long pursuit. It's not, it's not, not done quickly. Um, and yeah, I think if you're strong, it can, there is a lot of crossovers to a lot of different sports. Um, because as we said earlier, it's like you can't be too strong for a thing. You can, like, you know what I mean? Like you can't be too too much of something it isn't a bad thing in terms of strength. I don't think. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I think that's something. It's easy. It's easier to lose. Easier to lose than it is to gain. So. Yeah, yeah. I think that's something we're just sort of discovering now in modernity, isn't it? That the the stronger you can make a body, and I think I think it's because people equate strength to like the ability to pick up weights or whatever it is or have bigger muscles when like you say your tendon and joint strength the yeah. bigger a buffer you can put on that in as you especially as you get older in life then that you know you're a you're a, a taller hill to come down from as such aren't you yeah it's going to last you so much longer than someone who's never probably building that strength there they're at baseline and when yeah. you know if they get injured or whatever it is they're going to detrain a lot quicker aren't they yeah, definitely. I'm, like, if you see a, like, I'm sure if you saw like two seventy-year-olds, someone that's been in the gym sort of a long period of their life, they're going to be much. Even though they've gone through that stress of the gym, and you, like, one school of thought might be, ah, oh, 
you know, they've been through a lot of stress, they're going to age quicker, but it's like really the opposite, isn't it? Mm. Like if you've, if you've, if you've been in the gym and you've done, you've been healthy and you've stressed your body to a certain degree, which isn't unhealthy, then yes, longevity is definitely a winner. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of maybe beyond the scope of this conversation, but that that's something to think about a lot. Like if you can, you know, if you, most things in life are like use it or lose it, aren't they? And if you can, Mm. I always think like if I keep weight training, if I keep doing some form of resistance training most days for the rest of my life, at what point would I start rolling backwards versus if I did, you're probably never going to notice. And that's something I thought about the other day. I think I heard someone say it and I was like, that's such a cool thing to think about is that if you woke up in your body today and no, you didn't know your date of birth, how Mm. old would you think you were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think being in strong and being agile and athletic, there's going to be much less tells, right? Whereas if you're someone who doesn't train and, you know, you've got all the aches and pains that come along with everyday life without that buffer of being strong Mm. enough to get through it, you're probably going to overestimate. Yeah, definitely. I don't know, my back feels like I'm 60. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're an athletic spry guy. You might be like, I don't don't know, like 20, that is. But then I think that that goes a long way in terms of, you know, sort of training day to day. But then in terms of like, when you're doing it like for your job and you're almost like, you're going through periods where you're probably not, if it was, if it was for your health reasons, you wouldn't be training, but because you're doing it for your job and you're trying yeah. to get to the next level, you sort of push through it. I think there is definitely a, a point at which you get, you know, you see a lot of like battered athletes after their career, they've just been through a lot. Um, and that's like the other end of the spectrum, I think, but there's always a happy medium. Um, yeah. Like doing like little and often, like you said, is like, it's always going to win. Yeah, I guess it's it's deciding whether or not the juice is worth the squeeze, isn't it? And I guess at, yeah. your, at your level, like, of course you're going to train through that. Yeah, like, like, I guess most of us don't want to get up and go to work on some days, and that you know yeah. that's your that's your job essentially, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And just like the rest of us don't get to go, you know, my ankle aches a bit today. I might just mm. stay in bed. It's yeah. unfortunately for you, it means like yeah, and yeah. sessions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I've noticed usually is like you have those little pains and it always feels better mid like halfway through your gym session yeah. so like even if it feels worse by the end if you get up and do a bit like you get warm you get sort of your joints get warmer and sun over your fluid and all that sort you know like you always feel a little bit better doing a bit it just depends on how much you know yeah yeah i hate to give i hate to do like make sweeping statements but motion is lotion isn't it yeah for sure yeah like obviously like disclaimer not for everything but yeah (laughs) a lot of the time like just stopping just immobilizing is the worst thing you can do isn't it because i always like metaphorically i almost think like you're saying to your body oh don't worry we don't need to do this thing anymore anyway so yeah don't worry about fixing it yeah yeah, yeah. it's, it's like having a car on your drive that you never drive yeah and the and mot it, runs out and you're gonna be like yeah never mind but if you go yeah, 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 yeah. you've got to drive it every day you're gonna be like well i better do something absolutely. about that right yeah absolutely and also that goes even in terms of just like how you feel not specifically an injury but how you feel with training like i always feel my worst in a, in a week off or two weeks off after a race you never feel bad like during mid strength blocks you know when you're you're up early and you're not really seeing the sun because our sport happens to be because our job is just an indoor sport. You know? yeah. So you might not, you might not see sun for like three weeks, but you never feel bad in those times. You feel bad when your body relaxes, you know, and like the amount of times I've been peak form, gone to the world champs, like 
PBs, done really well. The day after, bang, you get a huge cold and you're out for a week and a half. Like it always happens. Like we always joke that like your peak form is on the edge of illness because yeah. you might be trying to lean down a bit, which probably isn't helping and you're doing just enough to just enough training to keep yourself from detraining. Um, that stress of the race and everything building up to that race. And the day after the race, you relax and your body chills and then bang, you get a cold. It, like, nine times out of 10, every big race I've done, I've been ill like after just a, like a normal illness. Um, I'm not sure if that's like your body sort of forcing yourself to be healthy up until that point or if it's just you completely relax and your immune system shot from the stress, I guess, and then you get ill, but it always happens. I guess that's what peak really means, right? Like you're at the pinnacle yeah. of what you're capable of before you go too far. But do you think that there's like a demographic of people who perhaps train that way who don't need to, and it's actually, you know, it's not necessarily that beneficial for them? In terms of sort of training hard, overtraining? Yeah, or not? like, yeah, the, the training they're doing, they're almost, I think because we put, it's more like this is a really easy example because it's more interesting to speak to somebody like yourself mm. who is aspirational and is doing something kind of like the world stage and you're at the top of your game. Yeah. These are the, these are the stories we hear. And I think some people can conf maybe confuse aspirational and inspirational in their head. And they're like, well, that's what I'm going to do then. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's almost not worth it. Right. Yeah. I don't think I'd be training this hard if it wasn't like to go to the Olympics or, you know, to sort of, do something crazy with my life that I really want to sort of that I've worked on, you know? Um, yeah. I wouldn't be doing like, even with my back, I wouldn't be training for, like for six months of like chronic pain, you know, if it wasn't for something at the end. Um, but it, it goes both ways as well. It's like some people just love that, you know, some, yeah. there's a lot of like road cyclists just, just love the pain, you know, that like, like as soon as they don't have that, they just go off the rails. Like they need that pain in a strange way, you know? Um, yeah. But I think another thing as well is in terms of training frequency and like intensity is like my old coach says, I mean, we laugh at him for saying it, but like it's, it's got a bit of truth to it. It's like, there's no such thing as overtraining, just under eating and under sleeping. Like, I mean, it's obviously not exactly true and it doesn't really apply to that many people because there's more to your life than just training. Unlike me. Um, but it is sort of like, I think there is some truth to that. No, I think um, that that's, that's whatever way you look at it. It's actually yeah. inarguable that that's true because even if yeah. you are training too much, then you are under recovering. Like there's a, there's a, there's yeah. a tipping point at which your recovery is not recovering you from the volume of training mm. you're doing. And yet, yeah, it might be that in your situation, the volume of training is what needs to come down. But yeah, there is always the option to up your you know yeah. you're, how much you're recovering I don't yeah. Know. yeah perhaps there is a point at which there's no more you can increase your recovery but I think we know yeah. through, we know through people like yourself that that point is probably way beyond most people yeah and yeah. We speak about sort of up in your recovery is that's another thing is we really do very little in terms of when we do active recovery but we we really we don't use compression we don't use anything like this to sort of aid our recovery because you want to be in that hole to get bigger gains. Like you want to get in as big a trough as possible to then bounce out as high as possible. So like during training blocks, we really do very little in terms of like specific recovery. We save that just for like leading up to a race. Um, 
the only thing exception to that is ice baths because I like, absolutely love ice baths. Um, but I don't do them that regularly, mostly because of convenience, really. Um, but that's one thing which I was surprised me when I joined the team is I thought we know compression socks would be on after every session. Um, it's just the basics, like you get your protein in, a bit of active recovery on your day off. Um, and we really, you don't really want to freshen yourself up too much. You want to be in that hole um, of, of training fatigue because for us, it only matters twice a year how we do. Um, so as long as you're out of your training hole by then, it doesn't, you don't need to do it daily, um, which I always found quite interesting. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. And it, it almost like flies in the face of what seems to be common knowledge like at the moment. Yeah. Like it's such a big... There's such a huge emphasis on recovery and how people mm. recover. I'm, I'm exactly the same as you. I just think you can just do the basics. We may, you know, yeah. I, I know people who have the worst sleep hygiene in the world, but mm. they'll spend hundreds yeah, of yeah. pounds on recovery supplements, and yeah, yeah. massage guns, and they're yeah. not ticking the, you know, they're not get, grabbing the low hanging fruit first. And yeah. it's so cool to hear someone at like your level say, yeah, we, you know, get enough sleep, eat your protein. Yeah. Yeah, like I think there's a time for it, you know. Like if I'm a month away from a competition and I'm not feeling as fresh as I'd like to, like obviously they'd all come out. I'd get, I'd be doing all of that. Um, but like, but that's because you know it's my job. Like, yeah, like my income relies on how I do in that race. Um, but I also know that when it's early in a block and you wanna you wanna get that training stimulus, you don't wanna stifle that stimulus by recovering too much too often. Um, but I think the only caveat to that is if you're injured, because then you, you want to, you know, you want to, like it with a, um, what's it called? A game ready, you know, game ready. Um, like you can ice like a specific part of your body um, with like the compression sleeve. Oh, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. So like something like that, where you're recovering a specific body part um, because of injury. But yeah, very rarely I do total body, except, yeah, as I say, ice baths, I love them. But uh, I think that's more from relaxing and, like my time at different races and like different, I guess, different continents where like that's become, that's almost like a, a, um, like a lifestyle thing that they do after races. Um, but yeah. Yeah. That, that's so interesting. Cause it's one of the biggest like points of contention at the moment, I think is the efficacy of ice baths for, for recovery. Oh uh, yeah. Um, like it's yeah. such a, no, I find it interesting is that the people I see who are, um, really quick to roll out all the research kind of rubbish in it are people that it kind of doesn't matter to anyway like they're not yeah. they're not performing at any sort of level i suspect it's yeah. just they tried to have one cold shower and they realized they were a pussy yeah you know <laughs> they're like, oh i better get some research to prove and it's yeah, one of those know, sorry go on. it's one of those things is like the first ice bath you do is horrible and then like you you really quickly adapt to it and like yeah now i like i finish my i finish every shower like putting it on the cold just to get like a blast you know like like it just i don't know just for me it just completely like marks the end of a training day and like the start of recovery um like the start of getting your food in and sort of like for me i, I love it because just more, probably more of a mental thing um yeah because i think as a sprinter i'm not sure if there's huge i don't know I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure on the evidence but it seems to me it's more sort of endurancey stuff, um, um, but yeah, I just I like it either way. But that's that's about all I use. Yeah, I think the the mental boost of the of the cold is, and the, yeah. just the ritualistic, like you mentioned there, like what it marks to you, I think is a huge yeah. Um, that that can't be 
undersold and it, it might be something that people would that you could label that as placebo but i say to everybody like you should be grabbing every placebo you can like, yeah why yeah. would you ignore if you could bottle up placebo yeah still think. the richest man on earth wouldn't you if you could yeah, sell like, that yeah when people say oh yeah i'm like oh i don't i can't think of an example but they might be ill and they took something and it's like oh it's just placebo though but i was like yeah, but you feel all right now. So yeah. even though it's placebo, <laughs> it's like it still works. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Doesn't it yeah. matter if it's placebo or not. Like, yeah. Um, but in like when I train in Japan, like that was a huge like ice baths. There is every single session they do it, and it's like in Japan it's called onsen. They've like public baths, um, and at every racetrack they've got them there. So it's just one of those things habits I got into. Um, I mean, if I hadn't like it's one of those things like if you have an ice bath, I'd do it all the time. It's just convenience of going out and buy two bags of ice walking back and then by that point it's an hour after training you know um so yeah it's one of those things which is convenience is the only problem with that really yeah um, yeah what's uh what's next for you where are you at now with your training with your competition um women have europeans um like last week or two weeks ago but because of the problems of it was going to be in belarus and because of the problems mm-hmm. with the political stuff got canned um so I basically did an in-house hit out in Manchester with some of the other squads and sort of to replicate that. Um, so that was a shame. But we've got uh, World Championships in October, um, which is in Turkmenistan, another another country which might get pulled yeah. for the rest. Um, <laughs> but there's talk of that moving as well. So yeah, all being well, being the World Champs in October. Um, and that'll be two months after the Olympics where when everyone gets back, um, I'll say hi to everyone again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm aiming for that at the minute. Of course, also, I should mention, we got the Commonwealth Games next year as well, um, which is in, in England, which is cool. Um, yeah. So that would yeah, be quite a big be. target. Yeah. Is that, uh, how, do, how does that work in terms of the qualification process and stuff? Yeah, qual- uh, Commonwealth Games is different because obviously I arrived for GB, um, not yeah. England. Um, and there's, there's not really a, an English cycling. There's a Scottish cycling, a Welsh cycling. There's no English cycling. So basically we come under the remit of British cycling still, like all our staff are British cycling staff. Um, and qualifying for that is, I'm not really sure exactly. I think it'll just be in how, yeah, like a selection based on results from now until then. Um, but yeah, no, that'd be, I'd like to race at another commies. would be nice. Um, got silver in Gold Coast last time. So I'm not sure Birmingham will, I don't know, hopefully it'll live up to <laughs> competing <laughs> on the Gold Coast in Australia. Um, but yeah, either way, it'll be a good event. Yeah, that's a that's a different point of gravy, isn't it? There. Yeah, but uh, at least you'll be on home turf. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like can he do it on a on a rainy night in Stoke? You know, like, <laughs> can he do it? Um, well, you have the you'll have the uh, advantage there, might you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Used yeah. to it, dude. I've got a toolbox talk a round of quick fire questions. Okay, just to try and give people some sort of really tangible bits to go away with. Although yeah, I yeah. would say that. Yeah. to your hugely to your credit mate like you're <laughs> super good at just like delivering the like you don't have to tease anything out of you you're like oh, this is what we do you know build up I'm to just... a run rep max not always and yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that was actually <laughs> I'm fantastic a, i'm so good at bs mate <laughs> <laughs> if you could make one book or piece of media compulsory reading or watching for other people new to cycling or training what would it be and for what reason? And it doesn't have to be a book. It's cycling specific. That's tough. Um, I don't know about cycling specific, but in terms of sort of 
I don't know. I've mentioned it to you before. Like, how? Wh- why we sleep by Matthew Walker. Like, I love this book. I know like some people don't like it as much, but I absolutely love this book, and that like that changed my life in terms of how I approach a lot of things. Um, I've recommended that book to so many people. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd have to go with that one. I know it's not cycling specific, but for what, me, what that changes. Do you after reading that? What did you take away that's kind of made did, changes for you? I didn't. I guess. I think the one thing about sort of making a change in your life is like um, education. Like if you know why and how, then you're more likely to do it. Like yeah. you're not just going to sleep more if someone says it's important because you're like, oh, who's this guy say I've got to sleep more? But like when I read that, I was like fully convinced of it. Um, and I've not like searched all these, everything he said, I've not sort of searched it for myself, but I've took it as pretty gospel. Um, and I'd guess just like the benefits. I think it started off with saying like, if you can, if you could take a pill which increased, you know, in concentration by however many percent and all these, it gave like a load of different examples. Would you take it? And I was like, well, yeah, I'll take the pill. And then that's basically what added like optimal sleep would give you basically. Um, so yeah, I really liked it. Cool. Um, yeah. You can tell, you can tell that we've had this conversation before. <laughs> <laughs> I, couldn't remember, I couldn't remember what we said about it. I remembered we had like a discussion about it. If you could go back in time and speak to yourself in the first year or two of your training or your competitive career, what advice would you have for yourself? Yeah, I'd take it slow. Don't don't rush anything. Um, like always, I think that's just my personality type. Of like, if a session isn't perfect, I like beat myself up. And be like, like shit, that was not a good session. I've got to make up for that. Um, at the end of the day, one session is one session. It doesn't change the world. Um, and that leads into almost like selection, like selection for races. I used to stress a lot about that and like drained a lot of energy out of me for that. But then at the end of the day is you go as fast as you can. And that's one thing, but a randomer could come in and eclipse your, your PB. And then suddenly they're the main guy. Like all it takes is one race for the whole perception of how you are as an athlete to change. Um, so yeah, that I think I'd tell myself that because I think, I've been learning that more recently is it doesn't matter if you're peaking for 12 months of the year, you've only got to peak for two, one or two races. As long as you peak just before that race, you'll be in the squad and then you'll race. Um, and I'm, whereas I used to stress about being the quickest out of everyone every day, um, which probably caused a lot of stress, which I didn't need. Yeah. So like almost focus on just being the peak version of yourself rather than, you know, yeah, you don't, yeah. And everyone else. You just, yeah, you, you train as hard as you can with an end goal in sight. Not you don't train as hard as you can to be like, it's not going to make you quicker the day after and then the day after, you know, like it takes a while to get that bank before you can see the improvement. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can definitely, I can definitely see that. I think that's something that comes with age, isn't it? Like you, 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 yeah. If you're aiming to be the best, it's like kind of like being a big fish in a little pond, isn't it? It only takes someone to put a bigger fish in and yeah, exactly. And I think that was one thing that Chris Hoyle was really good at is, and Jason Kenny still now is they wouldn't go crazy early in an Olympic cycle. They'd sort of, they'd measure their effort towards that big day because they knew yeah. that they had the confidence behind themselves to sort of do that. Um, whereas I think when I was a bit younger, I mean, up until now, I'm only realizing it now, I guess is I thought I've got to be the quickest today because if someone else goes quicker than me, they'll be in the team, but then it doesn't matter. You know, like take yourself away from that. It doesn't matter until you're at the race yeah um, race the races yeah you don't you don't win medals in training um you know but obviously you need to do the work but yeah 
that's cool yeah i really like that because you the, the i guess that added um like emotional stress you're putting on yeah it's huge uh, completely as well. unnecessary and unhelpful right yeah yeah like i don't know if i've done quite a few like best times in training in like non-optimal com- conditions and i think that's just because you know you're going in fresh mind you're not stressing about it um and i think that's that can't be underestimated really yeah i really like that what one or two daily or weekly habits or actions possibly unique to you do you feel have contributed most to your success is there anything you Um, do that you think is quite sort of specific to you um i think i do do a few things but they're quite technical on the bike um in terms of i think the way i approach certain efforts on the bike is different to other people um in terms of sort of lifestyle things is one thing I've done recently, which, well, I mean, the last couple of years is sort of almost sort of looking at meditation and sort of the benefits that gives you, but sort of non-spiritual. So almost like just following your breath um, and sort of completely sort of switching off. And I use it a lot of races where I imagine it's like, I might be five minutes until I race and my heart rate's getting higher and higher. And I mean, it's not optimal. You want to sort of relax. Um, and sort of following your breath and sort of knowing that, you know, you're like at that one moment, you're safe. You're not racing yet. You know, you've got five minutes. You can stress about that. Then you don't need to worry yet. Um, and then you just put it off, put it off, put it off. And then by the time you get to your race, you're like, Oh, I'm here. It's fine. I'll just start. Um, I think that's one thing, which I think one little habit thing that I'd sort of, I'm bringing into training more and more. Um, I think that helps a lot. Um, I mean, you can even do it in mornings, you know, like the first thing you do in the mornings, you reach your phone, you've got Instagram where I think, in an optimal world, you would, your phone would be elsewhere. And I'm not saying I do this, but your phone would be elsewhere and you sort of take, sort of take a moment, sort of, sort of take stock of where you're at. Um, and I think that's something which has helped me a lot before. And I'm, I hope it's going to, I hope I can make more of a habit of that. Yeah. I think that that is a, a, a literal game changer. You know, yeah. all the, all the, you know, there's, there's so, there's a huge body of evidence for, for that and uh, you something you said there i think hit the nail on the head as to why so many people can't engage with it is the the, the kind of spiritual aspect um yeah get rid yeah get rid of that ter- like, yeah yeah and uh, i think that then people see it as kind of i guess sort of like hippy dippy stuff yeah, yeah um, exactly i think that's why i always try and prefer to try and if i if there's someone i'm trying to talk to about it and i know you're not going to be convinced i always use the term yeah. like breath work as opposed yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do the same. Yeah, as opposed That's to meditation. Even though, you know, it's one and the same and there's so many forms of, yeah. of meditation. I think the longer yeah. you do it as well, you start to see certain things that people do in their lives and you're like, Oh, you're actually meditating there. You don't realize yeah, 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 yeah. it in every Definitely. culture. But I think yeah. one thing you said that was really cool that I want to pick up on was that yeah, you can get out of bed in the morning and do your meditation, but um the times when you maybe really need it more are the times when it would be the last, most people would hesitate yeah. to do it there and then like the bringing your heart rate down and meet yeah, it's, for a race and people think you need to get yourself psyched up. Right. But yeah, that's like, so, but I think there's like a, there's a, I think you can be psyched up and sort of calm. Like, yeah, I know for me, I've got to be psyched. I've got to be psyched to some level. Otherwise I'm really not going to perform. I've got to like, I've got to be like ready and sort of really focused and um, and sort of driven towards that one thing. Just thinking about like my first rev pedal as hard as I can out the gate um, before I reset for the second rev. Um, 
And I think like people here meditation, they probably think that, you know, you've got like love heart eyes after it, you know, yeah. you sort of just relax. But like, I don't see it like that at all. I just see it like, I'm still like absolutely hyped in my head, you know, but I'm still following my breath. It's not like yeah. I'm, it's not like I'm completely relaxing and thinking about nice things. Like still thinking about like ripping the handlebars off, but I'm sort of, I'm still sort of, but in a sort of controlled way. Yeah, you're, pr- you're present. Rage. You're there, aren't you? You're, you're yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Anywhere else, yeah. I, I almost yeah. think that's kind of how I put it to people. Like, it's not that you're not soaked up. You're actually just channeling it to the right place, yeah. which is here and now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. not, you know, not thinking about. I think anything. there's other there's other riders that really don't get psyched up at all. They love to sort of like chatting and like making jokes, like trying to make you laugh, you know, because they're probably nervous themselves. But for me, it's like anytime I've tried that, I've just bombs. Like, I've got to be. I've got to be. Fo- I've got to have my headphones on. I've got to be focused. Um, so I think that's probably another thing that I'd say that I'd sort of bring into my life, or career, career sporting wise, is like work out what is best for you in terms of warming up. And like, I spent a long time sort of just only getting psyched and fully psyched, and then it went fairly well. So I never tried anything else. Yeah. Um, but you've got to sort of you know, try all these other ways of doing it. Like some other teammates that are relaxed, they probably didn't used to do that. It's only when they're sort of confident enough to do that, that they learn that's best for them. So I think sort of trial and error with the way you approach things like that as well. Yeah. I think um, that's, that's pretty profound, mate. That idea of, you know, just because it works once doesn't mean it can't be improved yeah. on. One, one other thing as well is like, it's sort of similar is find out how's best to warm up for you. So, you know, like you think of a warm up, you think of stretching and sort of getting your heart rate up, mm. but, for me, like I'm like hypermobile and stretching's like the worst possible thing I can do. So in a warm-up, I don't do any stretching at all. I just do engagement. Like so I'd switch on my glutes, switch on my upper back, things like that. Um, whereas most of the other guys, they're sort of stretching out their glutes, stretching out their upper back, like foam rolling it. So like, I think you've got to find out how you can optimally warm up for yourself as well. Because um, I found a big change when I did that as well. Because um, yeah. if like... I'm hypermobile. I'm just stretching the joint more. It doesn't make sense. Um, so I think that's another thing. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic advice. It's very easy to get caught up in what everyone else is doing, isn't it? Or what's mm. common knowledge. But as you kind of alluded to throughout the entire conversation is the idea of when we experiment, we can often find that, well, there's a much better way to do this. Yeah, yeah. What is it that, this cliche, it, well, that's like when you're at the top, you change when you're at the top, you know? It's like, mm. you don't just do the same thing, but I mean, I'm, yeah, I think there's definitely some, um, everyone can sort, no one, no one's hundred percent optimal, are they? Like there's always something you can improve on. Yeah. Um, just about finding it and through experimentation is the only way I think. Yeah. Can you name one item that you've purchased or acquired relatively inexpensively that has given you a huge return on investment, whether that's in your training or your productivity or just your general contentment, like something people could go out and sort of get right now that you would call a game changer? Yeah. So I think, you know, sort of I've mentioned about um, like rate of force development and sort of as a sport, if we only have only ever grind out one RMs like really slow, then it's not really got that much crossover to the bike. So yeah. one thing I use a lot is a little, uh, it's called a beast beast sensor. Like it's a little magnet goes on your bar and it's basically your bar speed. Um, and it basically allows me to one, to have a target when I'm squatting sort of aim for a, aim for a speed, like 0.8 meters per second speed of a bar or something like that. But two, it means that you're 
training in a training in a speed range which is relevant for your sport or for what you're going for um so obviously you're a powerlift you might be down in like 0.3 meters per second of bar speed on the way up where if you're doing plyometrics you might be at like 1.5 meters per second um so that's a little gadget that i've used um quite a lot and it sort of yeah it has it has taken my training on a bit i think um yeah that's that's great that's actually just pushed me over the edge because that's something i've been i've been thinking about for a while yeah. i'm not that quick for a smaller guy and it's almost like i have trained myself to be a bit slower by trying yeah. to be strong for a small guy and i do notice yeah. it in like i can't jump very high for like for my weight and things like that yeah. and i've actually been thinking get a b sensor and just yeah, yeah. in all your lifts that you're doing already just do yeah. them faster so that's i the, think that's going to be it big, for me now. biggest thing it did for biggest thing it did for me was like when you're doing a set of five you might just be in your head your goal is to do the five but yeah if it's a weight that you're comfortable with it gives each rep a, a target you know like each rep's maximal then you're not you're not just doing the five you're going for five single reps of maximal speed um and i think that i mean it makes you more of an athlete i think rather than yeah. like a like a, a strength guy you know like i think it, you, something to aim for it really helps i really like that yeah that puts a that puts kind of a huge spin on every rep then right yeah, you yeah. can't you're never going through the motion as such yeah yeah yeah. Well, I, I actually broke i broke mine when it dropped off the bar so it's like i need to get another one actually it's like yeah it's just magnets goes on um i think you can you can get a little you can tape it but um which probably should have done um but yeah it's definitely 100 percent worth getting sure. right um, well, if no one else is, I'm going to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> if you could only perform one exercise or movement for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? Um, it'd be a squat. It'd have to be a squat. Because um, I think it's, can't really think of another lift which brings you through the same range of motion through your lower body that, I mean, you've got deadlift, but it's more of a hinge and it's not yeah. quite as, um, and I know that's considered like the ultimate sort of movement of strength um but for me i just yeah i'd have to go for squat um i think it's just yeah i just enjoy it and i think it has a big crossover to sort of living as well because yeah. like the warm-up you the warm-ups you got to do for it only improve sort of your day-to-day mobility um so yeah i'd go for the squat I think we're now, what are we? This will be like episode 26, 27 of the podcast. And I think it's about 18, 18 votes for deadlift and you're now yeah. the second for squat. Really? Is anyone um, a bicep curl? It must be someone. <laughs> I, think so, I think a couple of people might have said it jokingly, but yeah, I, know yeah. that I know they meant it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I really like yeah, the spin bit. you put on it there though, which, of, which actually has just made me think, like because you can continuously deadlift with a fairly like you know even if you're sore even if you're feeling a bit sluggish and your mobility isn't great you can still hinge and get away with deadlifting yeah. to a large degree whereas a squat yeah is always going to require that degree of mobility isn't it which i do think yeah. carries over better into yeah. keeping I, you more well-rounded i think i think i'd if i wasn't a cyclist and i was completely injury free i I, pref- I do i think i prefer deadlifting because i'm just better at it um, like it comes more naturally to me. Yeah. Um, but I think just for squatting, I think, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd, I don't know if I could, I don't know if, 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 if deadlift was the only thing you did, I think you'd probably get injured 
after a while. I can I can one hundred percent attest to this from personal yeah. experience. <laughs> yeah. well, I think well, I think squats a bit more, are probably a bit more long lasting if if that's the only thing you did, you know. Yeah. Because um, it's just a natural body movement, isn't it? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I'd go for squat. I really like that. Joe, where can people find you online? Mostly Instagram, uh, Joe Truman one. Um, so that's where I'm at uh, on Twitter, Joe Truman 97. Um, so yeah, I need to post a bit more, I think. Um, but yeah, I think I put up a lot of uh, obviously bike, bike related stuff and some sort of gym work stuff. So check yeah. me out there. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, thank you very much for your, your time today, mate. It's uh, great to speak to you again. And um, yeah, I'm hoping we can, uh, I'd really like to uh, get in some sort of strength or cycling session with you. Yeah, mate. Get up to, we can, we'll definitely fit that in. Have you been on the Velodrome before? Yeah. Uh, once. Yeah, I absolutely yeah, love yeah, it. Yeah. 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 We'll do it again. I'll get on as well. Yeah. We're good. Excellent. Okay then, mate. Well, enjoy the rest of your night and thanks again for coming on. Sweet. Cheers, mate. Appreciate Cheers, it. Mate. See you later. Bye. And there we have it. Thank you for listening in. Guys, if you enjoyed today's episode, It would be greatly appreciated if you could drop us a review on your podcast app of choice. Any feedback you've got, please send it over via social media and don't hesitate to tell us what you would like to hear more of. I'm AT, this has been the Bulldog Gear podcast. Thanks for tuning in, guys.